I have mixed feelings about this one. It doesn't click with me the way a lot of the previous arcs have, you know? Like, I've if it's probably been obvious from my overall tone and demeanor, I've been really digging Season 4 so far. This is probably the second real dip in overall quality. It's not a big dip. It's not like the episode I can't remember the name of. The filler episode right before Observer Effect. It's uh, Daedalus. That's it, Daedalus. Daedalus was just kind of... But this is weird. I don't even know how to properly describe it. And that's a bad thing, because that's my job. The Reeve Stevens crew wrote this one, along with Kodo. Kodo actually said this was his favorite episode from Season 4. I would love to know why. No insult intended, of course. I, I'm, I'm legitimate. But of course, in order to properly have such a conversation, I would need to figure out what I don't like about it. And I think the best way to put it is it's all about the details. There are specific details that sour the whole punch bowl, for lack of a better analogy for me, which I'll be covering as we go. What's interesting, though, is this is also directed by David Barrett. You're probably thinking, who? And that's valid, because this is his only directing credit in all of Trek up until now, and his only contribution to Enterprise. You may know the name, though, because he went on to serve as a director on Discovery. So, one of our very few crossovers from the production staff from uh, Modern Trek into New Trek. So they decided to dock at warp. Okay. I mean, it's not literally docking. They have the tether and all that. But, uh, wow. <laughs> warp 5-ish. Yeah, um... These are rough calculations, but I decided to sit down and do some math while I was watching this scene unfold. And it's it's pretty terrifying. It's very impressive looking, but it's pretty terrifying. Do you know that in-flight refueling is a thing? Has been a thing for decades in real life. A long time. But I bring that up because in-flight refueling is actually terrifying and horrifically dangerous to do and can go very, very badly, obviously. But that's done at a speed of about 370-ish kilometers per hour which is important because what they're going warp 5, which is either 4.427 million times faster or 9.729 million times faster, depending on what you use. As I've talked about before, there's no such thing as a static speed for warp, which has always irritated me. So I take your pack. Those are the figures I've got to work with. But either way, the relevant point is made clear. A minimum of four point four and a half million times deadlier than what we do in real life. So that's that's cute. That's terrifying. I thought about talking about the inconsistency of warp speeds here, but every time I do, I get people in the comments who tell me, Lord, you're an idiot. And I mean I'm I, I'm tired of that, so moving on. <laughs> I'm not gonna let it go. I do think it's stupid they don't have a codified speed. It's just other people disagree with me, so that's whatever. So, um, the Columbia is there. That's cool. That's cool. It is nice to see Hernandez again. I think this is one of the last times we're going to be seeing Hernandez, unfortunately. So that, that's a bit of a shame. Nevertheless, she helps. Cool. It's also cool that they show that the Columbia literally looks differently than the, uh, than the Enterprise. And if you don't understand why I point that out, remember that every time a Galaxy class or an Excelsior class or whatever would show up, it would look exactly identical back in TNG and DS9 and arguably Voyager because they were using the same model. So it did look identical. There are a few exceptions to that, but those were usually case specific. 
it's nice to see that they actually bothered to d- change the design up so it looks like a different ship. That, that's all. It's just a nice little touch. It's the kind of thing that would actually have been really cool to do from, you know, the beginning when it comes to this show. Or this series, I should say. Anywho, this is probably the first time we really see Tucker earn his engineering chops. Well, you know what I mean by that. The engineering badge, right? Virtually every main engineer, there's no virtually, every main engineer in old Trek as well as modern Trek had to at some point or another earn their badge to, to, to earn the right to be called a Starfleet engineer. And that always involves pulling some absolutely random insane trick in order to fix a situation that was deemed impossible to fix. This is Tucker's inclusion. Well, he's done some good engineering stuff before now. It's usually been in the lines of make us go faster, make the thing not blow up. Or try to to fix something in an extraordinarily small amount of time. That's all normal maintenance level stuff. This is more impressive. So that's another bit of characterization that happens in season four. It just keeps happening, doesn't it? We could argue where Scotty's and LaForge's and O'Brien's and Taurus's various badges were earned. But you, you know what I'm talking about. There's always at least one moment where they go above and beyond and really impress. My personal favorite uh, is actually one from very early on from Scotty's. You know, I kind of bend the laws of physics. You know, when he's trying to restart the warp. It's just a cool little scene. Anyways. <clears throat> so, they managed to make it with two seconds to spare. Whatever. <laughs> I'm not even going to mention the fact that this is basically speed in space. And speed had come out at this point, I'm pretty sure. So, this leads to probably something that I don't think anyone intended at all. But I find fascinating. Two captains of the two Warp 5-capable ships decide on their own, without orders from Starfleet Command, to just go and engage in a mission into hostile territory by themselves. Now, I'm not making fun. Quite the contrary. If they're officiates of the state, this makes perfect sense. You've probably heard me talk about this concept for a while. Would you believe this is actually where that idea had its very first blossom when I was first watching Season 4 of Enterprise? Because I was looking at that like, well, this makes perfect sense. They need a level of independence and a level of being able to make their own decisions. And if you're granting your military officers, or whatever, your organization's officers, the right and ability to make their own command decisions when it comes to these kind of operations and what operations they do with regards to overall mission parameters. So in other words, it's not just a tactical level, but an operational level of control. Then you kind of, by default, have made them officials of the state. Whether you have done it officially in paperwork or not, they're acting on behalf of Starfleet, period. And they're making decisions on their own, on behalf of Starfleet. So you see where the idea just stated. Considering this leads to an interesting period of pseudo-peace between the Klingons and the Federation, excuse me, Starfleet, which will last until uh, Day of the Dove, not Day of the Dove. Um, I was confused. It's the one with Kor. And the Organians. I don't remember the name of that episode. That one. <laughs> Considering this stage of relative peace will last until then, I'd say they did a pretty good job. And it helps to explain one of the reasons why Starfleet has this policy. The other reason, of course, would be necessity. Like I said, you have it's, it's the Old West. You've got the captains and they're out there doing things. You can't always line up with that, right? Arguably, this same policy would somewhat continue into Kirk's era. It would not be until Picard's era that this policy would officially stop existing, because by that point, you know, the infrastructure has followed the Old West, and the Old West doesn't exist anymore, right? That would have been an interesting take to do for Voyager, now that I'm thinking about it. Have Voyager, you know, you know 
have Catherine Janeway actually say, hey, you know, there's this old uh, article of Starfleet Command and Federation Code that used to allow captains to act as officials of the state. It was rescinded under most circumstances, but it remained part of the regulations for extreme circumstances. And thus they could start acting literally on behalf of Starfleet. Just, I don't know, food for thought. Mm. Anyways. Meanwhile, we see the uh, implications of the beating that happened for Vlox. We don't actually show the beating itself, which is a little strange. Usually they bother to show the actual beatings. This is also when we find out that in addition to... So they're going to cure the virus, right? But in curing it, they're still going to be affected with it. So the ridges are still going to go away. There's the TOS explanation. But they're also going to uh, do something else. Now, I was reading a whole interview by Manny Cotto about this. Apparently, he wanted to explain why the TOS Klingons acted so differently from the TNG Klingons. That's fine. I just always sort of assumed this was kind of a cultural drift thing myself. But he wanted there to be a more tactile explanation. And that's why the line that uh, Flock says, which is a minor neural reordering exists, to explain that the Klingons literally think differently in this period of time, that their brains function in a different manner. And then once they are cured by, you know, Neural Paris, that that would eventually lead to them reverting back to the standard Klingon format. Just an interesting thing to think about. Meanwhile, Archer continues to piss me off. Now, the Section 31 subplot is okay in this episode, more so than it was in the last one. It only pisses me off twice. This is the first time. You answer to me, says Archer. Okay. And then the guilt trip. He guilt trips Reed, and Reed finally admits that he's under orders. But Archer's response to that is to, like, like violently react immediately, like, I'm under orders. You read and, and so it's that kind of, like, immediate response thing. And his line, and I wrote it down, was, I'm your commanding officer. You don't, you don't follow orders from anyone else. You follow orders from me. And I kept processing why this pisses me off so much. And it sort of clicked with me. Because I paused the episode and I just sat here and I just processed Trek. And I started putting it in my mind, what if this was happening with Kirk? Would I be okay with Kirk being this upset? And I just kind of went down the list, you know. And then I remembered one of my favorite scenes in Star Trek VI. There's actually a line that isn't in the movie that was arguably intended to be in the script and is in the novelization. From Sulu, quote, if I ever had to choose between betraying my friend or betraying my country, I'd hope I'd have the guts to betray my country. Unquote. And I realized that it didn't bother me the idea of Sulu, for example, betraying Starfleet orders in order to help Kirk personally. Now, it's probably worth noting that that situation is massively different, and that's why I say the details of this episode bother me. Because Archer isn't really in the right here. Not really. He ended up helping. Him, the, uh, the Enterprise and the Columbia both ended up assisting in the situation substantially. But ultimately, they're not really in the right. They're not trying the best they can to save the day despite the obstinate government, which was what was happening in Star Trek VI. They're blundering through blindly trying to figure out what happens and rescue flocks, which is a little... You can see how it's a variance, right? But then I realized the other layer of how this is different. Sulu's loyalty to Kirk is understandable. It's well-established. Uh, okay, I take that back. It is at least something that we can presume is well-established. And honestly, George Takei mostly sells that. 
Reed's loyalty to Archer I find more questionable. And, of course, that makes sense since Archer only started being captain about, uh, what, 12 episodes ago? You see my point? I've said before that Archer as the incompetent captain is something I like. And I do. I stand by that statement firmly. I like the idea of him not being ready. Of him being in over his head. I love that take on it. And it is a unique take for a Starfleet captain. Because every other captain, to some extent or another, has been completely on top of things and ready to go. Arguably as they should be. Kirk had his own, you know, uh, machismo, for lack of a better way to put it. And also his faith in his crew, which was a critical component of that. Picard was a seasoned veteran who was a career officer who had been a captain before he came to the Enterprise. Cisco kind of developed into it, but Cisco was an excellent uh, administrator and someone who was willing to work through and around the rules in order to accomplish things. And Janeway, when she was written properly, was someone who could project the necessary presence in order to ensure that things got done in a certain manner, except when she wasn't written properly. But you get my point. When when Janeway was, let's be blunt about this as we can, when Janeway was actually Janeway, she was pretty good. And a lot of that probably sits on Kate Mulgrew, because, you know... Archer, by contrast, then, is the one who is just, "Ah, (laughs) how do I deal with this, you know? And I like that. But the problem is that is in contrast with the I owe all my loyalty to Archer thing. Quite the contrary. It would be more more like the the, the variance I would put into this. Sorry for stuttering so much. I have a bit of a headache and it's causing me issues here. The variance I would put into this. It'd be funny if I'm having a stroke or something, wouldn't it? It's okay. It doesn't run in my family. Um, instead of I am loyalty or commanding officer because he is God kind of approach, which is what they're going for here, I would make it instead Reed insists on informing Archer, not because of loyalty to him per se, but rather because Sir Archer is one of our first NX captains. He's the first captain of the five ship. He's developing. He's he's working together to, to, to be a better captain, but he's not going to react to this in a standard way. We know how captains... No, you don't understand. Archer is not like other Starfleet captains. He hasn't gone through the same rigorous protocols that every other captain goes through. We need to treat him as Archer, not another captain of Starfleet. You really believe we should... We, I really believe we should keep him in on the loop in this, sir. If nothing else, it will enable us to take care of him in a more measured fashion and be aware of what he's doing rather than have him just poking holes in our theories. All right, I'm going to go ahead and trust you on this one, Reed. Okay. And then Reed, you know, is like, Captain, here's what's going on. And Archer's like, I'm upset, but not as upset. And then Reed suggests he gets taken to the brig. That's the end of the first episode. In this episode, Archer finally goes down to meet Reed and is like, I'm not comfortable with you being here, and I need you on the bridge. Reed's like, I'm, are you certain that's wise? I No, I'm not. You coming, Malcolm? Then they go. And then they get to the big confrontation scene here. And Reed's like, you know, Archer's like, I need to know where Phlox is. I need to know what's going on. And Reed says, unfortunately, sir, I'm a bit down on the totem pole. I don't actually know all the details. And Archer's like, well, who does? And Reed considers for a moment. And Archer's like, Malcolm? And then Reed's like, I can get you in contact with him. That then leads to the scene where Archer confront, confronts Harris. And Harris... Uh, is Harris. We don't really need to change him much. And you see how these changes... I'm not really changing the overall structure all that much, but I'm changing the details. The details of the specific scenes, of the characters' perspectives, and how they react to each other. 
in my mind, this smooths out everything. You know, I don't like to criticize without critiquing. And this would elevate these two episodes substantially higher. As is, I actually put the last episode at a plus one instead of a plus two, which I know you don't know what that means yet, but it'll, it'll come up in the finale video, which is, I've been prepping for this whole, this whole time. So it's just, instead, Archer's just, blah, 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 blah. anyways. Uh, so Phlox, uh, makes an interesting point to, uh, oh god, I can't remember his name. Not Kavach, I remember his name, I wrote down, I wrote it down back here. Autok, that's right, Autok, the medic. He says, you're, you're a physician. Yes, and my, my father disowned me, but you're a freaking physician. This, once again, connects back to that judgment point. Because someone who thinks that only physical fighters serve in the military is a moron. There's a huge web of support infrastructure that is necessary for a military to operate. And that's just on the field. Never mind the kind of things that are necessary for them to have that equipment or to have that infrastructure and to have the manufacturing, have the resupply, etc., etc., etc. But, of course, this isn't me making fun of the writing. This is me making fun of the Klingon Empire. And this is a problem that they will go through for some time and will eventually lead to the various Klingon arcs we've already discussed at this point. Anyways, culminating arguably in Deep Space Nine with uh, Tacking into the Wind, which is still one of my favorite DS9 episodes. Anywho, Kvach then tries to control the augments. Big surprise. And they're chafing under his control. Big surprise. This again ties into the idea that the augment DNA is designed to be aggressive and not controllable, basically, that they don't respond to authority. And we kind of see that here. It doesn't actually get to develop into anything because, duh, but that is the implication. Then what happens after this is a scene that amuses the hell out of me because I've been on the receiving end of this multiple times in my life. Boss walks in. Progress. Um, well, uh, we are making progress. Things are going well. I need details. Uh, well, uh, uh, let me get into the specific and exact details of the specific thing and a specific... I need details I can take to my boss. Uh, okay. <laughs> How many of you have ever been through that? Just, just out of curiosity. Uh, way too often. All right. <clears throat> Anywho, this is when we see Admiral Krell for the first time. He's connected to the high command and is implied to be someone reasonably high up in the totem pole Which, when it comes to the military. And even in the more TNG era times, we know how much influence the Klingon military has over Klingon politics. So he's a big voice. Big fish, if you want to put it in such terminology. This leads to Reed and Murad. Murad says that soldiers don't question, they obey. But it's okay, because if the superiors are wrong, then they're imprisoned or killed. Man, that just says everything it needs to right there. Do I even need to add to that? Do I need to... Is there anything additional? Nope, we're good. Okay, cool. We also find out that they're feeling fear now. Now, I kind of mentioned this. This is the other line. They mentioned the neural reordering earlier, Phlox did. This is the other line. I feel fear and, and my heart isn't even Klingon. I was going to make fun of this, but then I remembered a scene over in TNG, and I had to look up the episode number. It's season 4, episode 17, so when TNG had gotten good. And Worf was terrified. It's the episode Night Terrors. And Worf actually feels fear and goes to commit suicide over it. Because the very idea of the fact that he is so afraid actually compounds itself and makes him feel like he is losing what it means to be himself. That he is losing his sense of identity. And, you know, being a Klingon. He shouldn't be feeling this kind of fear. He has to be talked down from this. 
It's actually a surprisingly good scene in an otherwise forgettable episode that wasn't actually all that great. But I wanted to comment on it because it kind of indicates the same thing. Klingons feel fear, of course. Why wouldn't they? But usually Klingons do kind of a Vulcan thing with regards to their fear. They just lock it away and they put it over there. They'll actually feel that elsewise, when they're in private or when they have the opportunity to reflect, assuming they even try to. So, being afraid on the bridge during a, during his shift? Uh-uh. And being afraid during a combat mission? Utterly unheard of. Instead, what Klingons usually get is they get into it. They get into the zone. They barbarian rage, to put it simply. And they just kind of ride that wave. To be afraid during that... Mm. Either way, Archer then mentions that he doesn't trust Harris. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And the Klingons could have gotten their help some other way. Swing and a miss. <laughs> the problem here is that the Klingon Empire, especially at this point, is is not going to reach out to the Federation or the Denobulans or anyone else for assistance on this matter. Even ignoring the augment thing, even ignoring that. If they just had a straight-up plague they were having difficulty with, they wouldn't do that. That's not the Klingon way, especially at this point in their political structure. No, they would try to probably send out marauders and teams to kidnap medics en masse in order to try and bring them in to deal with this. So, that's neat. But anyways, this then leads to the loyalty to the captain over loyalty to Starfleet thing. This is when the, the Sulu quote clicked with me, as I was that I already mentioned. And Harris then shows himself as being surprisingly pathetic. Krell is like, oh, I used you and you're pathetic. And Harris is like, but we had a deal. This actually irritates me, but it probably shouldn't. Because after all, remember, Section 31 is new at this. And there's no Federation yet. The Klingon Empire could eradicate humankind probably inside of a week. That might be highballing it, to be completely honest. I mean, that whole Zindi threat. If the Klingons decided to as a unified force, they would stomp Earth. And that's important, because it's it's trying to get across the idea. Remember what I talked about, about the little fish, the diplomatic country? Well, they are starting to make alliances and connections. The Andorians, Tellarites, and Vulcans combined probably still wouldn't match the Klingons. Because the Klingons are... You're going to make jokes about this, but Klingons are France. Know, circa like the 1500s, right? They are the big stick wandering around right now. And the Romulans would probably... Let's not go into that. The point being, <laughs> big big old stick, big old military, big old influence on affairs politically and militarily and economically. And that's a terrifying threat. And the only reason they managed to do anything is because they are allowed to continue to exist while the Klingons are busy with other affairs. Thank goodness. It actually makes me wonder, because if the Klingons had decided to do a preemptive strike, uh, history would have gone extremely differently, either by the conquered or enslaved or eradicated human race. Well, that's a sea change, isn't it? Food for thought. Instead, the Klingons end up joining the Federation in Season 1 of TNG and nowhere else. I've already talked about that. Anyways, so, Krell decides to play Klingon politics. This is actually kind of Romulan if you think about it. It still fits for a Klingon of this era, and arguably later eras as well, because I'm going to wipe out the general, wipe out all the people there, hide the evidence of the program, take care of the plagues, that's dealt with, and I'm going to seize and take these Starfleet ships for my own. Yay. You notice, by the way, how it's already being shown as useful to have two of these NX ships ready to go, the NX-01 and 02. 
I've talked so much about how big of a deal it is that they only have the one big ship, the one carrier in the Pacific, right? Well, now they've got two. And we see already that that is a significant change in how they can project their power. Two NXs managed to delay three Klingon warships substantially enough to be able to accomplish their mission. One would absolutely not have been able to. Either way, the Klingons... Uh, oh, I, I have to point this out, because... Most of the people in this show don't have shields. There are a few. Andorians have shields. Klingons have shields. And so the most of the time when someone beams over, it's not a big deal because the shields don't exist for them to not be able to beam through. So naturally, they beam the virus up to the enemy ship through the shields that they make a point of saying in dialogue that they can't penetrate. Now, I know that that's slightly different, and we could hand wave this away, but I just wanted to point it out because... Even Enterprise can't get away with being able to beam through shields. Whatever. Moving on. Phlox managed to, to outmaneuver Krell. And, of course, Krell decides to become the champion for ensuring that this uh, eradication program discontinues. Why? Well, because he'd be killed if he didn't. This is very Klingon. I've talked a lot about the differences between internal honor and external honor. Uh, real honor and fake honor. And we've seen real honor in this very episode with Autok, for example, who is legitimately honorable. General Kavach, a little bit less so. Krell, absolutely not. All three of them practice external honor, though. All three of them do the fake honor thing. And Krell, this is the, the biggest showcasing of it, in my opinion. Oh, well, now I'm infected. Uh, high command, we have a cure. I recommend we use it immediately and try to distribute it throughout our people to ensure blah, 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 blah. Because otherwise he'll die, and that's just not acceptable. But it's okay, because he's doing the honorable thing by being willing to, you know, save these brave Klingon lives. Fake honor. So, Tucker is already back on the Enterprise. We'll talk more about that next episode when he, I'm just going to spoil this for you, formally decides to stay on Enterprise. What I also, speaking, speaking of temporary changes... Reed is like, don't ever contact me again. I'm done with Section 31. Beep. Four episodes from now, I desperately need to contact Section 31. Thankfully, they don't hold grudges because, you know, they're supposed to be above that kind of thing. Eh, average episode, I would say, at least for Season 4, which I suppose doesn't work, but, you know, yellow. I'd say it's a yellow episode. I'm a little nervous about the next one. I just wanted to admit this up front. I haven't seen it in quite a while. I'm not sure I've ever rewatched it, to be completely honest. I have heard nothing but bad things about it, and I barely remember it myself. And that always makes me worried when I walk into an episode with a rep, you know? It'll be interesting to see what I think of it when we get there next time. 